Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Newcastle Chronicle and Liverpool Echo. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective, you're in the right place. I'm Dan O'Donoghue and on this week's episode, we'll be speaking to Newcastle MP Catherine McKinnell about the cost of living crisis. I can't see how the government can ignore the reality staring them in the face, which is households that can't afford to put the heating on. People are frightened. We're in really cold weather right now. It's an unusually cold April and people are frightened to put the heating on because they know it's going to cost them double, triple what it cost them um, only a month ago. And they, they don't have any extra income coming in and everything in the shops, the prices are going up. Um, we've seen the projected rise of inflation. Everything's going to keep going up. There's really no light at the end of the tunnel for an awful lot of these families. And as the countdown continues to the local elections on May 5th, Rob Parsons speaks to South Yorkshire local democracy reporter George Tor about the race to succeed Metro Mayor Dan Jarvis. There's about seven or eight different layers of, of, of kind of democratic control. And I think for some people it, it does get confusing. But I think the main issue will be is transport. If they sort buses, sort tram trains, sort local train services, I think we'll go some way in kind of winning a lot of people over. I think that, 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 that's got to be, you know, kind of from day one. Well, first, we reported on last week's episode how Boris Johnson could end up with a worse share of the vote in next month's local elections than Theresa May had in 2018. This week, there are further woes for the Prime Minister, as polling from the Country Land and Business Association predicts a swing away from the Tories in countryside seats. With me now to discuss is CLA President Mark Tufnell. Mark, welcome. Thank you very much, Dan. It's great to be on the programme. I wondered if you could perhaps just start by talking us through what your polling has found. Well, thank you. Yes, we did a poll of five of what we consider to be the most rural areas within England and Wales. And that, for example, included Cornwall and Gwynedd um, and Norfolk and we asked a series of questions. Firstly, was voting intention? And secondly, was how you felt the government was reacting to uh, the current situation and how they were looking after the rural economy. And what we found was of those people polled, about 46% said previously they had voted Conservative. However, their voting intentions have changed considerably. So that In the forthcoming elections, the Conservative vote has fallen significantly to 38%, and those thinking of voting Labour would vote 36%. So there's only a very marginal gap between the two. Previously, it was 29% for the Labour Party. The other interesting aspect is that it's the Liberal Democrats who've also lost support, and the Green Party have picked up support. The Green Party has moved from 3% up to 8%, and the Liberal Democrats have fallen from 13% to 10%. So the message is there's a much more um, marginal gap between the Conservatives and the Labour in the rural constituencies that we targeted. And what kind of policies do you think may well um, turn this around for them in the countryside? Well, I think it should be a wake-up call. The government has come out with a levelling up white paper and they quite rightly recognise the need to have a levelling up between 
um, the country. They focused up on the differences between the North and the South. We want to get them to focus out into the countryside, out into the rural areas. We want to have some levelling out, as Lord Benjamin uh, said to me, it's a term he came up with. And we feel that we don't want the countryside to be forgotten. The most immediate issue that they were concerned with was the lack of affordable housing in the countryside. That was the biggest message that came out. There were 79% of people who felt that young people had been driven out of the countryside because of the lack of affordable housing. Now, interestingly enough, we also looked at connectivity, broadband and digital, and we felt that maybe because the rural areas have poorer connections than the towns, that that would be a significant factor. In fact, over lockdown and COVID, people have actually worked quite well. People have adapted pretty well to working from home, and it's not as much of a difference and uh, a difficulty that we would have expected. But the government is tackling that. The government has come forward with Project Gigabit, which is rolling out broadband by 2030. I mean, at the last election, obviously, there was um, a major play f- from Boris Johnson for you know what's been termed the Red Wall, um, hitting and taking those kind of traditional Labour heartlands. Do you think you know that that targeting of those places? could cost the Tories the countryside? Because obviously, as your poll has shown, there's been quite a turn away from them. If you think back to the last election, as you quite rightly say, it was the red wall seats in the north um, that resulted in the large majority, 80-seat majority that the Prime Minister currently has. But the majority of those are in the towns and the cities. And that's why we focused on the rural areas, Cornwall, Cumbria, North Yorkshire, Norfolk and Gwynedd, just as five rural areas that we wanted to focus on. And 17% of the electorate are in the countryside. And we feel that that marginal vote is really important. Traditionally, of course, rural seats are conservative and they take them for granted. And I think this poll shows that we shouldn't be taken for granted because there's a strong possibility in some of those seats, potentially, for the Labour Party to come forward and take control. You know, you mentioned that um, the Tories have perhaps taken um, countryside support for granted. And you said at the start that this should kind of really be a bit of a wake-up call for the party. Do you believe that this is a blip or evidence of a longer-term shift away in the countryside? I think the government has to be careful and the Conservative Party have to be careful because North Shropshire by-election showed that people are worried about standards in public life. The by-election in Chesham and Amersham showed that people are worried about housing and planning. And we have, towards the end of this month, an all-party parliamentary group that we've helped on, which has been looking into the rural economy, and we've looked at some of the key issues that would help level up the gap between 
the rural economy and the urban economy, and planning and housing is probably one of the most important issues. And don't forget that if you close the productivity gap, productivity gap that DEFRA have shown to be 18%, you can increase gross value added by up to £43 billion per year, which not only helps the businesses, but also helps the Chancellor because he can tax it. I mean, obviously, the, the Chancellor himself is um, a Northern MP and he's in a, what many would term a countryside seat. I mean, would you like to see people like that around the Cabinet table being a bit, bit of a bigger voice for the countryside, perhaps? Yes, is my simple answer. We have a department at the moment, Department for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. I'd like to see much more emphasis put on rural affairs. And one of the things that we've looked at is how the Department for Leveling Up, Housing and Community to Communities could work cross-government, maybe through the Cabinet Office, um, to encourage much more rural proofing. And I know that there's a rural proofing paper coming forward because Lord Benyon has told me, but it hasn't yet arrived. Um, and I've been told that as part of the leveling up white paper, there will be changes within the planning sector, but that hasn't happened yet. And we've been told similarly that there's a food strategy coming forward. And the Secretary of State told me that it's not actually going to happen until the end of May. So there are lots of issues that happen within the countryside that is so vitally important to the urban community. And the poll is saying, don't forget the electorate. Realise that the countryside is important. There are lots of rural businesses working in the countryside. And our, our work that we've been doing shows that 85% of people who live in the countryside don't farm. So there are lots of rural businesses out there that need the help and support and the recognition that this poll suggests that perhaps the government is lacking. With me now is Newcastle North MP Catherine McKinnell. Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm speaking to you on a day when the hike to national insurance has just come into effect and in a month where the cap on energy bills has been lifted. What does that mean for your constituents? Well, it's really clear that people in this country are facing the worst fall in living standards in living memory for most of us. The government's complacent response promising a small tax cut in 2024 and the timing of it is clearly towards the next general election, rather than focusing on putting some help in place right now, is really ignoring the huge challenge that people are facing. I mean, for six pounds that they're hiking taxes up by, yes, they're giving a pound back, but clearly for that five pounds out of every six, families are really, really feeling the pinch. Now, you obtained some figures from the Department of Work and Pensions this last week, um, which revealed almost 2 million children across the UK 
will be impacted by deductions from the universal credit payments. Um, I think that's around three and a half thousand children in your constituency alone. I mean, you must be kind of inundated with people coming into your surgeries, um, telling you, you know, what what they're going through at the minute. It, it, you know, could you just kind of, for our listeners, explain what impacts some of these things are having in your in your area? Well, I have to say, for many of these families, this situation is not new. There have been we've had endless people coming through by email, by phone, in person. Um, with challenges with universal credit, struggling to make ends meet, struggling to put food on the table. And so, yes, I put a question in to the Department of Work and Pensions to find out just how many people are not only um, relying on universal credit, but also getting less every month from universal credit because they're actually repaying debts, whether that's because of a, a um, an advance that was given for universal credit as I'm sure some of your listeners know people don't get it straight away. They have to wait five weeks. So many of them have to take an advance to get them over that initial period of getting universal credit. Or they might owe, owe council tax. They might owe some other um, payment to a government agency. And so they're getting deductions from the universal credit. And yes, almost two million children who are by definition already living in um, poorer households and often living in, in poverty are getting money deducted because of money that they owe. So the idea that the amount of universal credit that people are already struggling to manage on is then getting further reduced every month for these households. We are just seeing so many children already living in poverty and more falling into poverty. And the government is facing half a million more children living in absolute poverty um, over the next couple of years with the plans that they have in place. So it's only getting worse, not better. Does it anger you when you hear the likes of Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak um, say that the best route out of poverty is work? Because obviously that ignores a lot of research from people like the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, which shows that you know around seven in 10 children are growing up in households that work and they're in poverty. Um, it just kind of ignores, it seems to ignore the facts on the ground really. It's incredibly frustrating, partly because it's an insult to those working families that then are working really hard, often in two jobs and still not able to put food on the table because they rely on universal credit. They're not getting paid enough and you can't do enough hours to actually pay for all the increases in food costs and everything else that we're facing at the moment. But it also just ignores the problem. And that's what's really frustrating. It's not a solution. It's not an answer. We have the government is quite proud to say we've got one of the um, highest employment rates at the moment. So more people are in work than ever before. Yet we've got more children in poverty. Does that not say something to this government that this is a broken system and just saying the same thing over and over isn't going to solve it? That we have people working and their children are growing up in poverty, which is just storing up huge long term challenges for the future because we know the outcomes of children growing up in poverty will be more difficult than for those that aren't. So clearly we need less children growing in poverty if we want to have hope for the future. There was a lot of pressure on the Chancellor ahead of the spring statement to kind of give some targeted support and he wasn't really very forthcoming with that. I mean, do you think he may have to go back to the drawing board on this one as you know the bills start to bite over the next couple of months? I can't see how the government can ignore 
the reality staring them in the face, which is households that can't afford to put the heating on. They're, people are frightened. We're in really cold weather right now. It's an unusually cold April and people are frightened to put the heating on because they know it's going to cost them double, triple what it cost them um, only a month ago. And they, they don't have any extra income coming in and everything in the shops, the prices are going up. Um, we've seen the projected rise of inflation, everything's going to keep going up. There's really no light at the end of the tunnel for an awful lot of these families. And at the same time, we've seen universal credit cut by £20. Now, that might seem not like a sound like a huge amount of money, but it's a £1,000 over the year for the families that are affected by a huge number of families. So the government has some really easy things it can do to target support at those that need it most. By giving back that £20 for starters, that was a terrible decision and we completely opposed it at the time. But really, um, they, I don't think they're going to have any choice but to revisit their current plans and trying to hold back money to give a bit of a tax cut before the next general election is just really cynical. And it's, you know, a problem is staring them in the face and they're waiting till people are in even more desperate situation to do something about it um, and you know i just wish they would listen and and see the reality that you can't stand by while half a million more children than already are fall into absolute poverty and we're not talking about relative poverty here compared to other people we're talking about absolute poverty by their own measure poorer than a standard that was set in 2010 so you know this is serious and these children are really suffering as a result now, we're also um, recording in a week where Partygate is back in the headlines uh, as fines are starting to be issued by the Metropolitan Police. Um, last week, you got to needle the Prime Minister uh, over this at the Liaison Committee. Um, could you, just for the benefit of our listeners, remind us of what you were asking and what you made of the Prime Minister's response? Well, I find it really shocking still, even from this government, and I don't hold them in really very high regard, that they were partying on a weekly basis, it would seem, whilst the rest of the country were in lockdown, people weren't seeing loved ones, people were really suffering the consequences of that isolation. And yes, it was, um, you know, a workplace, but it was not a party place, it wasn't a nightclub, and it's quite disgraceful that it happened. But you would think when something like that happened, and that, that total betrayal, really, of the country occurred, that then there would be some levelling with the public and some honesty about it. And I think that's what's been the hardest to bear, is that they continue to insist that um, they don't need to be upfront about who's now getting the fines. I mean, this is actual criminality that is evidenced in the Met Police issuing fines. They're not being open about um, whether who's been fined. But the, the Prime Minister seemed to not even admit to me that any criminality had occurred within uh, Whitehall, even though the evidence seems pretty clear. So I think it's insult upon injury, really, that people have really suffered during this period. And a bit of honesty is what's being asked for now. Honesty with the public, but honesty with Parliament as well. And I think the Prime Minister stood up in Parliament and said no rules were broken, yet he still won't admit that they were. And it's just very difficult to have faith and confidence in this government when it's not being honest about things that are that are clearly evidenced and backed up with facts. 
And you made quite an interesting uh, proposal. Uh, I think you suggested perhaps making lying in the House of Commons a criminal offence. Um, do you think many Tory MPs may well be uh, in trouble with the police if that were to come to come into well, action? Well, to be fair, this is not my suggestion. This is a petition that's been brought to Parliament, signed by over 100,000 people, 130,000 people, that want to make it a criminal offence to lie in Parliament. So I presented that because these are members of the public that want to restore honesty and integrity to, to Parliament, to proceedings, and to make sure that MPs, that there are consequences. I mean, but if I'm perfectly honest, there should be consequences, and there are consequences when a minister that tells an untruth in Parliament, he is supposed to offer his resignation, the Prime Minister. And that's where we're at, where we're not even in the business of admitting that what we said wasn't true. And I think that's what's very frustrating for the public. So this is really um, a petition that was brought. And I'm as chair of petitions, I thought it was right. I put that directly to the Prime Minister. Um, and again, he didn't answer the question. Now, you might recall on last week's podcast, we heard from Dan Jarvis, the outgoing South Yorkshire mayor who's leaving the role after four years to concentrate on being an MP. But as we take a closer look at some of the more interesting local elections around the North on May the 5th, let's find out a bit more about the contest to succeed Mr Jarvis, the runners and riders, the big issues and the chequered history of devolution in South Yorkshire. Our expert guide is George Tor, the local democracy reporter for South Yorkshire, will be watching the comings and goings in Barnsley, Doncaster, Sheffield and Rotherham in the next few weeks. So George, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks Rob, thanks for having me. So this is a bit of a history lesson for people who aren't familiar with South Yorkshire. Can you just give us a bit of a, a synopsis I guess about how the mayor's position arose in the first place? How do we get to this point and what, what, what the mayor actually does? Sure, well the big first milestone was probably Probably back in 2015, uh, the four council leaders at the time uh, signed a declaration with the then Chancellor George Osborne back in 2015. And then from that point to this point in 2022, it's had a bit of a chequered history. It's not been smooth sailing by any means. So the initial deal got off the ground and it kind of laid the framework for the £900 million of gain share funding, which was extra funding from the government to kind of uh, to be spent on capital projects. Uh, that uh, agreement was signed in 2015, got the ball rolling uh, to elect a mayor in 2017. Now, during that time, as you'll be well aware, Rob, with your role within Yorkshire, that uh, some council leaders got together and declared, actually, they supported a one Yorkshire devolution deal. Now, this kind of split South Yorkshire into two, Sheffield and Rotherham, really wanted to crack on with the South Yorkshire deal. But Barnsley and Doncaster, who were courted by others in West Yorkshire, notably, uh, had their heads turned and basically said, we want to join this one Yorkshire deal. So it began a bit of a... Heads were kind of knocked together to try and force a way through. And it ended up with the election, uh, election being delayed for a year. Dan Jarvis was elected in 2018 with no real powers... 2018 and there had to be some sort of uh, arrangement which took place which basically gave Doncaster and Barnsley a way out if such a deal 
came ahead. So this happened in 2020. So we finally got the money. We finally got the deal together. And Dan Jarvis, who was elected initially unpaid, uh, and as you said before, he also carried on as his role as Barnsley MP. Now, this caused a bit of uh, confliction with some, but I'd like to stress that Dan Jarvis or Mayor Jarvis at this point wasn't actually paid any salary for his mayoral work. And he was basically doing two jobs with one salary for his uh, role as the MP for Barnsley Central. So we got we got past that. There was a deal struck, a bit of an intermediary deal, which meant that Barnsley and Doncaster could leave. So Dan Jarvis could crack on with the day job and it pretty much turned into the pandemic straight away. So in terms of the region and moving it forward, there has been some decent stuff that's got off the ground over funding from government, over transport schemes. Uh, and the main powers really that the mayor will have to think about is there are a few, but the main big one, which will affect a lot of people's lives is transport, uh, active travel, such as cycling and walking as well. Uh, South Yorkshire uh, has a tram system. Obviously the operator around Sheffield and now into Rotherham through tram train. There are future ambitions to extend this across Barnsley and Doncaster. But one of the big battles that the mayor has had to contend with on two fronts in terms of transport is uh, buses. As we've spoke about before, Rob, the bus system in South Yorkshire and you know, practically across most of the country outside of London is really fractured. People aren't too happy about it. So he's been lobbying with others and the council leaders to get some more funding in. And the other big one will be uh, the renewal of Supertram, uh, which operates in Sheffield and Rotherham, as, as I've said. And we've only just today actually got confirmation from the Transport Secretary, Grant Shapps, that this will be renewed past 2024. This is a a £570 million scheme, the, the bulk of which will be laid to renew Supertram. So there are some big issues moving forward. Transport are the main big two uh, areas which the mayor has. Uh, they have a few less powers than the West Yorkshire mayor, for example, who has power over the Police and Crime Commissioner. Uh, so moving forward, once this money has become to roll in, there's more money from government coming now for various transport schemes under various guises and pots of money. Uh, the mayoralty will really kick on in this new term. Fantastic stuff. So... Um, obviously, Dan Jarvis isn't standing again, but uh, all the main can all the main parties, as far as I could see, are fielding candidates. I mean, can you just take me through who we've got standing, and is there, is there any realistic prospects of anyone other than Labour winning, you know, as far as far as you can tell? In short to that question, Rob, I think you know this is this is a all but a shoe in for Labour. I, I can't see anyone really challenging. Um, to be perfectly honest, the Tories did well. In 2018, last time, they got to the second round of voting. Uh, they were on a slight up, uptick, you know, obviously the year after they, they won a pretty sizable majority in the uh, in the parliamentary election. But I think, you know, with Partygate and other stuff going on, I don't think the Tories will be uh, perform as good as last time. Uh, Labour are the shoe-in. And then again, if you look at some of the other parties, the Liberal Democrats, for example, have got a really strong voting base in Sheffield, but Apart from that, they've got a couple of councillors in Barnsley, a couple in Rotherham, next to no vote in Doncaster, so I think they'll struggle as well. The Green Party might be an interesting one. I can't see that vote transcending across South Yorkshire. Again, they've had a really big Green vote in Sheffield. They're actually in partnership with the Labour uh, councillors at the moment in a bit of a coalition, uh, so they're standing. Uh, and the any other parties that I've missed off. Uh, the Yorkshire Party, again, are standing again. They performed very well in a recent by-election in Doncaster. They conferred with 20% of the vote, although a council by-election 
you know, it's not the same as a mayoral election, but they kind of put themselves as kind of a, a centrist party who are not the Tories and are not Labour. And I think they'll will probably pick up some people from that and think they will be hoping to uh, do better uh, than last time. They didn't do too bad the last time either in terms of in terms of the size of the party. Um, and then we have, as announced today, the Social Democratic Party or the SDP. They've announced a candidate today um, and they will be kind of hoping to really make break way into South Yorkshire. So they're parties for the moment. I don't think there's any other candidates who are announcing. But this kind of shows around Labour's kind of position at the moment is because a lot of the other parties actually took quite a bit of time to actually announce a candidate. The Tories, I asked the Tories weeks ago, well, who's your candidate? Who's your candidate going to be? And, you know, one person inside the South Yorkshire Conservative Party basically said, we're still trying to find somebody who wants to do it. So that's the kind of the the challenge they have because they don't, I don't think they feel too too confident in this, but, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, it'll be tighter than what everyone's, everyone's thinking, to be honest. It's good for democracy and it's uh, good for the debate. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the, um, obviously, the unique... Uh, aspects of Dan Jarvis's uh being mayor is that he you know he described himself as being the only mayor in Westminster he was South Yorkshire mayor or he is still South Yorkshire mayor and also Barnsley Central MP which gives him a sort of uh a quite special uh access to decision makers in Whitehall that others won't have obviously whoever succeeds him is not going to have that and also there you know if you look at the list of people who are standing there's no sort of big household names standing for mayor like there's not going to be an equivalent of a an Andy Burnham uh, or even a Tracy Braben who's been a cabinet minister a shadow cabinet minister an MP so do you think that the, the sort of tone of the mayoralty and the way that the mayor goes about their business might be we might notice some differences uh, when the new person is elected? I think so. I think, uh, you know, Dan Jarvis has had a lot of critics from even people from his own constituency around his kind of, you know, juggling acts, you know, Westminster and back up at Broad Street West in Sheffield. But to be honest, I think with the job he's done, I think he's done a, a relatively decent job, to be honest, kind of juggling both roles. I mean, a lot of people forget that, you know, he uh, was unpaid, was doing two roles in his mayoral stuff. And then when, when the money came in, he actually donated it away. So, you know, credit where credit's due. But at the same time, this is a full time job. Uh, he's aware of that and that's why he's had to make a decision. There was no way he was going to carry on doing both roles. Um, in terms of the in terms of the candidates, yeah, you are you are probably right. I mean, the Labour candidate, Oliver Coppard, is seen in South Yorkshire as a bit of a bit of a rising star in some respects. He ran Nick, Nick Clegg close in 2015 in Sheffield Hallam. Um, he went off to London to uh, you know, pursue other commitments. Um, you know, the Sheffield Hallam Labour Party asked him to stand again in 2017 and he declined because he was working and obviously it led to Jerry Lamar and we know all the all the ins and outs of that. So, you know, he'll feel like, you know, this is his time. Um, but yeah, I think it does, you know, a lack of a big name, like you've said, would it hamper South Yorkshire? Possibly. But then you've got to weigh that up with the fact that this particular mayor will be in the office Monday to Friday. They will be on the ground. They will want to get off on the best possible start um, and there's got to be uh, a massive mood change because, to be honest, with the elections, um, especially with the mayoralty, especially in South Yorkshire, I don't think I can really compare it to West Yorkshire, but in terms of South Yorkshire, this, this election has really flown under the radar. People are sometimes quite confused as to what the mayor does. Um, you know, like I, I made the example to somebody in the office that if you live in, if you live in Thorn, a village just outside Doncaster, you'll have town councillor, you'll have uh, your ward councillor, 
an elected mayor in Ros Jones, then you've got your MPs, and obviously there's about seven, seven or eight different layers of, of, of kind of democratic control. And I think for some people it, it does get confusing, but I think the main issue will be is transport. If they sort buses, sort tram trains, sort local train services, I think we'll go some way in kind of winning a lot of people over. I think that, 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 that's got to be, you know, kind of from day one. George Tor, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue. And it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. See you next week. <laughs>